This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 6th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers talking again this week from Phoenix, Arizona, where we're going to discuss what's been going on in taxes this week. And reality is, it's continued to be kind of a boring uh, few weeks here in taxes. You're in a position where Congress really isn't doing anything currently regarding taxes, not even introducing things at this point that have no chance of passage, which is something that often happens at this point in election year, which then I have to spend some time in various courses and settings explaining why I don't worry about those, because obviously they're not going to become law. Uh, but the flip side of that is we also don't have much in the area of any regulation projects being finished significantly, nor have we had any IRS big releases for the most part coming out, nor have we really had any major court cases. Now, given it's an election year, there may be reasons why we won't see a lot come out of Treasury until after the election, because in theory, that sort of thing could just get the administration in trouble is the way they'll often think about it, unless they're trying to make a point by doing something. So unless something of that sort comes up, and right now I don't see anything they would try to make a point out of. So then we go back to, you know, you don't expect anything out of Congress for the most part, because again, we're getting closer and closer to election day, uh, and it's more poison, you know, setting yourself up for why the other party is why all things are wrong in the world and why your home football team didn't win because, you know, they're responsible for all of that. So we have that posturing going on this year. And then we also just have, yeah, not much there. And the court cases, they could come down. We always have that chance of a big one of those coming. But so far, it's been relatively quiet. So this week, I'm going to look at a couple of things that aren't so much developments as they are something we've known about for a while, but we're just going to go ahead and talk about this week. First, the AICPA did release a letter this week written to the IRS and Treasury regarding guidance that the agency wants Treasury to issue on Section 174. Now, Congress's inability to pass anything is part of the reason why we have this issue with Section 174. Section 174 is the research and development expenses. And up until tax years beginning after December 31st, 2021, you could expense such items, any research or development costs one had, immediately. Now, as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that was going to be pushed out where it would have to be amortized over five years. But if it was mainly conducted offshore, it would be 15 years. Well, guess what? The year has now arrived. We have the five-year and 15-year issue. And now we need to get some guidance in this area because Congress has yet to do what everybody thought they were going to do. And this was added as part of the TCGA, TCJA, I should say, which is treated as something to just repeal quietly a few years later. So we'll talk about the status of that. We're also going to talk about IRS Form 7203. There was an article written this week that appeared in Tax Notes Today Federal and discussed the issue and the impact of that form this tax season. And what I thought was more interesting was a discussion that got going about 
when that form became a problem, primarily due to lack of records, and then also just a rough discussion of what a tax professional should do when you take on a new client and you discover that the records simply aren't there and what options one has. So we'll discuss that briefly. Now both of these are written up in far more detail if you download the uh, materials we do every week. So I'd suggest you grab those because that'll have a lot more details about these topics. They're not really developments, but they're probably something you just want to be aware of. 174, well, it is a kind of development. If nothing happens, we need to be ready for it. And I think very few companies are truly ready, especially small companies aren't really ready for the 174 potential problems. And then we also have the issue of just a discussion of what do you do when you inherit a new client who is an S-corporation investment and has no records whatsoever related to basis. You know, what exactly could you do? Or maybe you've got one right now you've inherited. You've got to put that 7203 on the return this year. How do you handle that information? So we'll discuss some of that issue. So with that, let's get into the AICPA request. And this is a letter, Comments on Research and Experimental Expenditures, under Section 174. It was a letter from the AICPA Tax Executive Committee to IRS Associate Chief Counsel Holly Porter. And that was, went out on May the 26th. Now, if you're not aware, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, like almost every major piece of legislation, there is a budget target they want to hit. And that's because they score the bill. In fact, if you remember as the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed, there was a rather hard ceiling that in order to get certain votes, the bill could not be scored to cost more than what I think it was $2.1 trillion. If it cost more than that over the 10 years, then they couldn't get the votes to pass it. No Democrats were going to vote for it, so it had to be passed only with Republican votes. And so they needed something that at least had, shall we say, plausible deniability that you were going to spend more than $2.1 billion. And I say plausible deniability because the structure they decided to use here was a structure very, very similar to one used when the Affordable Care Act was passed back in 2010 on all Democratic votes back at that time. If you remember the Affordable Care Act, we had a provision in there that had something called the Cadillac tax. That was a basically an excise tax on health care benefits that were in excess of some limit to try to get rid of these plans that essentially paid for absolutely everything made medical coverage kind of just a totally free benefit to the employees covered by such plans, which meant that they would go use it without worrying about costs or anything because, hey, it's free. I don't have to worry about paying for it. So the theory was that these were hurting and potentially driving up costs. At least that's partial theory. Now, the problem was that there were definitely people, and it's kind of interesting combo of high net worth individuals, who had programs like this, and uh, union members with union contracts that had these very good medical plans. So what they did was they put that in the bill, so theoretically it was there, but they had a super deferred effective date. Now, it did, in theory, raise money. It did, in theory, make this work. But 
a key thing you learn quickly is when any provision of bill has a super delayed effective date, that's reasonable to assume that the idea is that it will eventually be repealed quietly by a later Congress and you'll forget about that whole scoring or how it's supposed to work. You'll just, you know, when the pain comes close, then they'll just repeal it. No one would care. Well, again, we're aiming for this $2.1 trillion amount back in 2017 for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. In order to get the money to make this work, one of the things they did was took these research and development expenses that had been allowed to be expensed for a long period of time. In fact, I don't even know when we first got the option to just expense those off as opposed to amortizing them, but we have that, we've had that for a long time. Maybe as long as I've been in practice, could potentially, I mean, it goes back a ways. So we're able to write those off. Well, we're going to change that now and say, sorry, guys. While we used to be able to elect to amortize them over 10 years, now the amortization will be mandatory. Five years if it's domestic, 15 years if it's overseas. Now, again, TCGA passed in 2017. This thing wasn't going to take effect till 2022. Ladies and gentlemen, this was the Cadillac tax of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It was not meant to go into effect. What happened this year, though, was the actual provision to essentially allow full expensing was introduced. But unfortunately, it was introduced as part of the Build Back Better Act at a time when it appeared that that was highly likely to pass. Over time, it became clear that wasn't so highly likely to pass. And now it's sitting in that bill. And the problem we're running into right now is we're in that position where we're at the time of year where Congress doesn't like to pass things, uh, where the game is to blame the other party, or anything that goes wrong. And so there are incentives, I think, on both parties to like leave this in here and let the pain come at least through November and then blame it on the other party. If you're a Democrat, you're going to probably blame it on the Republicans by pointing out that no Democrat voted for this rule, you know, and they won't let us vote on the Build Back Better, whatever, you know, yeah, which isn't really the, which is the case, but we don't have, you know, they don't have the votes anyway. So, you know, if you're them, you got to go, yeah, we don't have the votes. So bottom line, conversely, if you're a Republican, you're going to point it out by saying, well, the Democrats are in control of the House and Senate and the presidency, so they could fix this now if they really opposed it. My take is both parties are equally to blame for this fiasco, but that's just me. You know, I, I'm not, it's not really that important who's to blame. At the moment, we're facing the risk of having to deal with this amortization. So the AICPA was asking for guidance in this area. Now, there are two areas asked for guidance here. First, the question is, what exactly are research and experimental costs? Now, we know already we have Section 41 and the research credit. But as the AICPA points out in the letter, um, there's not identity of what qualifies for Section 41 would not necessarily fall under 174. So we need to know under 174 what exactly is going to count.
there appears to be a serious concern at the AICPA that the IRS might decide that this should be a super broad absorption concept, something like 263 cap A's unicap rules. So they're asking specifically that the IRS recognize that Congress did not appear to want to see a super broad absorption when it was passed and want to see some guidance that A, makes it more clear what are research and experimental expenditures because we obviously have to amortize those over five years or 15 years if we don't get a fix, which we very well might after the election. The sad part is though we might not get it till early next year for the next Congress which I always hate when Congress pulls stunts like that, but they do. So we'll just have to see what comes up after this election. So in any event, though, whatever we have to do, the AICP asked for the guidance. They also noted, and this is important too, that intertwined in this is an old IRS revenue ruling, uh, or revenue procedure 2000-50, That dealt with the ability of companies to expense off certain software costs. Now, the problem is it kind of ties it in and mentions these costs are like research costs in some cases and also mentions that the special rule they have in 2000-50 that allows for expensing doesn't allow for you to use the expensing for items that would otherwise have to be amortized. So there's concern about, well, like are often like these costs, suggest there are some that are not research style costs that'd be captured by 2000-50. There's also, you know, concerns about how they authored the option to change your method. If you have to go from expensing to amortizing, they need that clarified so we could have it at this point and some other issues in that realm. So in any event, if you have, if you're not aware of that rule, uh, probably should take a look at that, especially the five-year amortization and being aware. I think be triply aware if if you've ever claimed research credit because I have a feeling while there's not identity of expenses, there's going to be some heavy overlap. So we might be in a position where, you know, costs that aren't qualifying for increasing research expenditures might end up being stuck in the five-year amortization. And the other problem is, you know, we spend a lot of time, a lot of a lot of companies, especially those who are out there pushing research credit studies, have done a lot of work to expand what's research and development activities that could come back to haunt us in this area. Because again, to the extent they succeed in court in finding those are research expenditures, um, if you don't qualify for having the increase of them that qualifies you for the research credit, then you might end up with a five-year amortization. So Keep your eye on that. Hopefully Congress fixes this, but don't make it for sure. That's a different problem. Now let's deal with Form 7203. This is dealing with the question of basis and S-corporations. This goes to an article that was written this week and appeared in Tax Notes Today Federal, written by Kristen Perillo. New basis reporting form spotlights role of proper documentation was in Tax Notes Today Federal on June 1st. Now, I was actually one of the people called as a practitioner uh, by Kristen on this issue. So, you know, fair disclosure there. 
But it did get me to thinking more and more about discussing one of the issues and some issues that other practitioners brought up who talked about this form. Now let's talk about Form 7203. Why was it created? What's going on? What's happening? Well, Form 7203, if you're not aware of it, is a form required to be attached to Form 1040 by any, basically, individual who owns an interest in an S-corporation and at any time in 2021, basically 2021 return, the S-corporation showed a net loss. The S-corporation made any distributions in 2021. The S-corporation repaid any officer loans in 2021, or say shareholder loans, not officers, but shareholders, or any shareholder who disposed of their interest, right? Regardless of whether it was via a taxable or a non-taxable transaction. In all of those cases, you need Form 7203. The IRS also suggests it's probably not a bad deal idea to fill it out anyway if you're not sending it in. Because the practical answer here is that is a form that has the worksheets, and they're very good worksheets, honestly, that involve the computation of basis for stock, basis in loans from the shareholder to the S-Corp, tracking that information, as well as tracking carryover of losses disallowed due to lack of basis. Okay. Now, what's happened over the years is a lot of things have happened. Right. If you actually go back, and I can go back to at least 1997, this is what you're going to see here if you're watching the video of this, is you're going to be seeing the screen here that shows you, you know, or talking about here, in 1997 Schedule E. And in fact, this actually was involved, I'm sure, for years before that. But the oldest Schedule E instructions I find on the IRS website are from 1997, effectively 25 years ago. So for at least 25 years, and I'm pretty sure it's far longer than that, the IRS had required you in certain cases to attach a computation of basis to your tax return if certain things happened with your S. And in 1997, that said, if you are claiming a deduction for your share of an aggregate loss, attach your return a computation of the adjusted basis of your corporate stock and of any debt the corporation owes you. Now, in the years following that, it was expanded to pretty much cover the other issues I mentioned, but it didn't really say anything except the instructions said that. Now, the IRS quickly became aware that it appeared people weren't paying attention to this. So what ended up happening was, on the 2018 return, the IRS added in Part 2 of Schedule E, in addition to having these documents, that, or these, I should say this statement, in the instructions that said, you've got to, you know, um, you know, attach a computation of basis in, on line 28, box E, right, where you list your S corporations, partnerships, etc. You had to check a box if the basis computation is required. Now, I remember when that happened, because I remember finding some preparers who are getting really upset about that because their software now, right, it might have been doing, it might have allowed them to do basis computations for years, but they hadn't paid any attention to that. 
and they'd just been filling in the S-Corp K-1s, and now suddenly they couldn't e-file because their software said you have to fill in the basis computations because you had one of the triggering events. And that was the first sign that we had that there were a lot of practitioners who simply weren't tracking basis when they were dealing with a you know a S corporation interest owned by the client. So that was an interesting issue. Now of course in this case you easily could have gotten around that issue if you still don't want to track basis which theoretically isn't really a choice you're supposed to but let's assume violating the law didn't bother you. You could have gotten around it by just checking the box and not really having anything much on the basis form. And for instance, a lot of software would allow you to not necessarily have the software limit loss deductions or pick up gains or calculate any of that stuff. It would just, quote, attach the basis computation. Well, obviously, the IRS decided this year that people just weren't paying attention there. They would check the box but weren't really attaching anything of use. So for 2021 returns, we now are required to fill in this form, Form 7203. Right? The S Corporation Shareholder Stock and Debt Basis Limitations. Now this form really just has reproduced the worksheet you were told to attach to your tax returns on the instructions that now have existed for many years. So the first part of it is a straight up computation of shareholder basis. It's done on an annual computation. It's got all the worksheet information needed. As I said, it is a very standard basis computation worksheet. As well, part two takes you through debt basis. The first part takes you through computing the amount of debt. The second part, section B, would take you through the actual basis the shareholder has in the debt and potentially gains you might get if any of that debt had been repaid and the debt basis had not been restored to the face value by the end of the year. That's kind of the key thing involved. So that was there. Finally, we had part three, which is the allowable loss and deduction item. So this is where we would compute allowable losses and compute our carryovers. So this form had to be attached this year. Now, the question became, okay, what impact did that really have on tax season? And the answer, as the article concluded, as all the practitioners that, you know, Kristen talked to said is, look, this wasn't a big deal. As one particular practitioner with CBiz said, you know, this is nothing like the mess that was the Schedule K2, K3. This was a total nothing because Every all the practitioners she talked to said we've been tracking bases for our clients because you need to know it. You need to know it because you actually can't claim an S corp loss unless you know you have bases. You can't treat a distribution as not taxable unless you know there's sufficient basis. You know, you essentially, if you don't know if there's a basis problem with loans, can't compute what's going on there, you know. Is any repayment of a loan a, ta a gain? And finally, I don't know what anybody did. If the S corporation actually liquidated, right, or they sold their shares, I'm not sure what they were doing for a basis computation. So this is a key problem. 
Now, as was noted, I, I think most and probably most of you listening to this, we're keeping those computations. Tax software years ago started including those computation options in the software. So it's not as if that was something that people weren't, weren't aware about how to do or your software didn't support. However, I think we've all run into the problem of taking on a new client and discovering that either it's a client who was doing it on TurboTax and they kind of ignored all that basis bit that might have come up on a questionnaire or they were having it done by a other practitioner who turns out has no basis computation forms that were ever attached to the return even though in theory they were supposed to be or they even checked the box on Schedule E and yet there were no basis forms in the return copy you got from them. You know, or they just flat out ignored it. Right, figured out some way to force the filing. So for all it's worth. So the question becomes, how do we deal with that? If a client doesn't track basis, what are our options for dealing with this? And as a practical matter, and it was discussed in the article, there really are probably, let's say broadly, three options. Option number one, if the records exist, just go back and compute the basis properly. That's the best result. Why? Because the IRS is going, you know, if you've done a proper computation of basis, the IRS is not going to be able to essentially do any really challenge. You've got everything you need from day one to today. Now, I've been through exams over the years. I've been exams of taxpayers who, were, who had S-corporation interests. And yes, I've been asked to produce basis computations. So it's not as if they're never asked for. They're asked for. Um, and I produce them. And it's an annual computation. You have to go back to when they got their interest and you have to calculate everything up. Okay. Now, in some cases, though, there may simply not be records. Your client has owned this interest in the S Corporation since 1987. Uh, there's no records going back that far from the S Corporation. Nobody has the K-1s from back then. None of that stuff is there. So, you know, we can't get it computed. Or the other catch, and this I think I'd be very careful of and not get sucked in on this. Uh, well, it's a lot of mess. We'd have to go dig records out of storage. Or you're going to charge me for doing this, which yes, I am. That's part of the deal. You're supposed to have basis. Not my problem that you fouled it up over the years. I mean, I, I'm very concerned too often where I see practitioners who want to make the client's problem that is simply a problem. They've not been doing things right. And somehow take that on as if they, the practitioner now, did it. You do not want to take responsibility for something the client fouled up. It's fouled up. You weren't involved with it. You're not to somehow just go ahead and cheat, ignore the, ignore the law, or skip everything just because you know you want to make you you don't want to have that conversation with the client, or you you know you don't want to tell the client they got to pay for this, or you just don't want to have that. So you're going to just go ahead and ignore the problem. That can come back to bite you because no matter how much the client swears right now that, oh, they understand, they don't care, they don't want to pay for this, just do it. 
when the IRS shows up, they will for sure tell the IRS that you told them this was okay to do it this way. They will swear that you said it was fine. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard you were fighting against it, they'll swear. Because once you acquiesce and once you accept it and you sign the return, for practical purposes, they're right. You've now accepted it as okay. You didn't do things you would, should do when you know it doesn't follow the proper rules. And there should be at least either you can't sign if there's no authority for your position or if you don't have substantial authority but you have at least a reasonable basis, there has to be disclosure. None of that's on the return. You have endorsed the method. And now when it blows up, the client wants you to pay the penalties, the interest, and maybe even the tax because, hey, why not get as much as you can? And they'll file complaints with state boards. And yes, they'll do things like that. Things like that happen, believe it or not. Uh, and I do get called in to work with CPAs from time to time about issues where they have complaints. And yes, weird things have happened. And clients file complaints sometimes for weird things. So definitely a problem in that regard. But if they're really just the records don't exist, the IRS does have, and we give you a reference to this, in our guide or in the manual in this man or i should say in the pdf file that you can download we give you a reference to the irs's special large business and industry division uh essentially kind of materials for handling s corporation exams and specifically the basis and overclaim loss rules and they do provide there a methodology they tell agents to use if the records simply aren't available. And the good news about that is you probably could use that method. Now, only try to use it if there's no way to get the real number. The real number is always the best approach because the IRS is not going to be able to get into this thing of saying, well, I see what you did, but really you should have adjusted for this and this, right? You know, you're, you're, there, there's wiggle room here, and that's going to be a problem because remember, whose numbers are presumed right? IRS's, right? So if they disagree with how you computed it, you have to be able to show they're wrong. How do you show they're wrong if we have no idea what proper basis is? That causes us problems. But you can go back, let's say if it's a simple S-Corp, you might just be able to take the, you know, the capital stock account, the paid in capital account, and your client's percentage of those, let's say they have 25% of the stock and they've been in from day one, and then take the, uh, you know, accumulative adjustments account and the other adjustments account and do that. Don't take retained earnings because retained earnings is a tax con is a, book concept, not tax. You're going to take AAA and OAA. They show you that if you walk through their examples. And that's how you do it. The third way in, well, it's really what they're using to justify the methods they give there. Um, the third way in is to just go to the Cohen case. And if you've got a better way you think exists of estimating that you think you could defend, you can try to go that route. The problem there is, yes, you have authority for it. But the problem is, remember, if the service thinks the other method's better, uh, they may very well insist you go back to the other computation. So probably the computation method they tell agents to use would be the main thing. Now, the key thing they note there is while that can help you, you do have to have inquiries of the shareholder about how did you get your shares. If they bought their shares from another shareholder, then using the inside numbers is questionable.
We got to somehow lock it down what's happened since they came in. Uh, but if they did buy the, you know, they put the money in initially, it's their S Corp. They put the money in. We're probably fine with that. Finally, the IRS discusses their interesting discussion. What happens if in analyzing you discover there were losses claimed in excess of basis in the past? Well, this is interesting because what the service tells us to do there is you do not get negative basis. Remember, number one rule is basis can never be less than zero. But rather, you create a suspense account of these basis, these losses that were deducted in excess of basis in the past in closed years. You then first use that suspense account to reduce the taxpayer's basis, assuming they have a positive basis you know, at the beginning of the year based on your computation of actually going back and computing basis or they have a positive basis, you know, out of this estimation mode, we then reduce it by the suspense account. If the suspense account is below, you know, if the suspense account is larger than basis, as long as that remaining suspense account exists there, you cannot claim losses and you have no basis against which to claim distributions. You've got to wait for basis to be increased by contributions to the escort by the shareholder or by income, that sort of thing to get basis restored. And then that's still going to chew up a chunk of that until we finally get to the point where we exhaust our suspense account. So they do tell you how to handle that. Note it's not negative basis, but it is a situation where you're keeping a suspense account that you might practically say looks like the negative basis number. Uh, but it's technically not. Basis stays at zero. This is just a suspense account. The IRS gives a full justification in these materials uh, that goes back to various documents that are a private letter ruling, um, a TAM, and a uh, field service advice that date back into the 1990s and into the early 2000s that justify this method. So in any event, as I said, 7203, and I think probably for most of us, it wasn't that big a deal, but it is an interesting discussion of how you report that and how you deal with clients that don't have basis. And I'm sure some of you got clients this year who, when now they were told by, you know, told by TurboTax, they had to fill this in or whatever tax software they were using. Now suddenly say they don't know how to do it and they're coming to you to help fill that in. And now you got to figure out how to work your way through it. So in any event, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for June the 6th, 2022. Current Federal Tax Developments, as always, is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education, Kaplan Financial Education, and your State Society of CPAs, I should say. Uh, I am monitoring discussions on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington, as well as anything that's posted on Idaho's discussion boards. I'm also, you know, we'll monitor the email address, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. If you want to, you can also check as we post articles on and off during the week. I haven't done much recently because not much has happened. Uh, but, you know, at the currentfulltaxdevelopments.com site. Uh, otherwise, I expect to be back here next week talking about more current federal tax developments, seeing what's going on. I do have a few. I'm actually teaching some courses this week in Arizona and a doing a remote session for South Dakota. So I got a couple of things happening this week. 
Uh, so interesting stuff, teaching times here. So I'll get involved in that. But otherwise, we'll see you next week on the current federal tax developments.